0: Have you ever seen something that you just can't unsee? Maybe everyone else sees it, but they don't see it like you do. It's something that's wrong, and it becomes for you a personal crisis. It's something that you need to do something about, and everyone else just treats it as normal. Maybe it's seeing all of the kids in need of foster care in our community, And being moved to provide a loving and safe place for kids who are coming from the most horrible of circumstances. To give them a shot. Or maybe it was you learning for the first time what actually happens during an abortion. And knowing deep in your soul, this is not okay. This is wrong. And I need to do something about it. Or it might have been one of the moments when you relearn parts of history that you were either intentionally or unintentionally skipped over um, and realizing for the first time that the America you grew up in was vastly different than the lived experience of many others. Or maybe it was like Chase and Michelle when they saw the spiritual condition of this country in the Balkans and they realized we need to leave this place and go there and spend our life there because there's not even a church in this community and we have the Spirit of God. Or maybe it's learning for the first time the spiritual condition in the city we sit right now and realizing, wait a second, this is not okay I remember the Lord gripping my heart and my wife's heart for the first time over the spiritual state of Duluth in about 2005, when we learned that only about 15% of the people in St. Louis County go to church on any given weekend, and that's any church, regardless of if they're continuing to preach the gospel or not. I don't think the number has gotten any better from that day until now. See... In that moment, it gripped my heart and it became a personal crisis for me that I needed to do something about. See, what often happens in a leader or a person's life is that they see something that everyone else has just concluded as normal. It's the way things are. But for them, it's a crisis and it demands action. Often, when a vision is first birthed. It begins with a holy discontent over the state of affairs of the present. And interestingly enough, in 445 BC, Nehemiah has an experience like this when he hears about the state of Jerusalem. Let's read it together. We'll call this moment the crisis. For, for our purposes today, if you're a note taker, we're going to look at this in four sections. Uh, the crisis, which is chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. The prayer, which is chapter 1, verses 5 to 11. The ask, where Nehemiah asks the king what to do, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 8. And then God's response, the second half of chapter 2, verse 8. So the first one, the crisis moment for Nehemiah. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah hears about the state of God's people in the city of Jerusalem and is utterly broken by it. The walls of Jerusalem are torn down. The gates have been destroyed by fire, and he weeps, and he mourns for days. He fasts, and it moves him to prayer. Now, as we've been tracking through the story, does anybody know how long the wall in Jerusalem had been torn down at this point? 140 years. This is not recent news, right? This is something that has become normal for the people of God. This is just how it is that when Babylon came 140 years beforehand under King Nebuchadnezzar and they raised Jerusalem to the ground, they tore down the wall, they tore down the temple, they took all of the valuables away, they sent most of the people into exile to live in Babylon. True, 40 or 70 years later, King Cyrus, the new Persian king, said to the exiles, you can go home now and rebuild the temple and re- reestablished the city. And they did under Zerubbabel and Jeshua the, the, the priest. But then the wall was stopped. The, the, the city was, was, was prevented from moving any further because of some accusations that they were going to rebel against the Persian king. And so all of the work came to a halt. And 13 years before Nehemiah hears this, Ezra leads a group of Levites and priests back to the city in order to reestablish the Torah and the, and the, the community of faith at the, as the center-defining part of the, the city of Jerusalem. But things are not going all that well. And Nehemiah hears this report, and it breaks him. Something that's normal to everybody else, but it breaks him. And he hears that the people are in trouble and in shame. The trouble is that without a wall, they couldn't defend themselves from their enemies and those who would attack and pillage the city. Shame in that the broken walls and the burnt gates were a constant reminder of their humiliation and the judgment of God. And the fact that they were no longer a free people, they served at the leisure of the Persian king. And Nehemiah internalizes this sense of trouble and shame, and feels the shame in a deep way, beyond simply the shame of the people. He feels a sense of shame for the Lord's name, and the Lord's glory. This is, after all, his people, his city, the place where he has chosen to dwell. And so Nehemiah is about to act boldly. But before he does, notice what he does first. He prays. He prays. Look at verses 5 to 11 to see what he prays. And I said, "'O Lord, God of heaven,' They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, and to the prayer of your servant who delights to, bear, to fear your name, and give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. A few things to notice The first might be obvious, but it's worth repeating. The crisis in Nehemiah's soul moves him to do what first? To pray. And also grieve and fast and mourn, but to pray. He doesn't immediately move into action or planning, but rather prayer. In fact, if you look at chapter 2, verse 1, the opening words of that chapter are, In the month of Nisan... And if you look back at chapter 1, verse 1, you'll see that in the month of Chislev, now I don't expect you guys to be experts in the ancient Jewish calendar, but let me just tell you, that's four months apart Four months between chapter one and chapter two. That means that he's probably praying this prayer or something like it every single day for four months, utterly broken by the spiritual state of the people and asking God to move, asking God to intervene, asking God today to be with him because he knows the king. Now, when Nehemiah is, is grieved over this state of affairs, he, he fasts, he grieves, he prays. And this is what his prayer covers. He kind of remembers four things. One, he remembers God's character. Two, he confesses his people's sin and also takes ownership. Three, he remembers God's promise of both judgment and restoration. And four, he asks God to hear his prayer and give success to his plans. So first of all, Nehemiah remembers God's character. It's amazing that often in prayer, the first thing that we have to do is reorient our heart to who God is. See, often when we're facing things that feel insurmountable to us, we need to remember who God is, and that he hasn't broken a sweat. He's not threatened in the slightest. Oh, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people, Israel, your servants. Lord, you are God in heaven. You are great and awesome, but also who keeps covenant and has steadfast love or chesed, covenantal steadfast love. Please listen to my prayer. And then as he begins his prayer, after addressing God and reminding himself who God is, he starts by confessing the sins of his people and then taking personal ownership for them. We have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Notice how Nehemiah owns the sin of his people. He takes personal responsibility for things that he didn't do, but feels a sense of complicitness in it. Now, it's one thing for Nehemiah to acknowledge the failures of the past and to confess the sins of his ancestors, but to take culpability or personal responsibility for them? It seems a little odd, doesn't it? In fact, when we begin to talk like this, it makes a lot of Americans rather uncomfortable, doesn't it? Especially when we start bringing up the wrongs of the past. Or the way in which maybe our ancestors haven't acted honorably or in a godly way in things, say, like race and slavery. Now, Some of, some of you guys are thinking, Pastor Kyle, do you really want to wade into this today? Um, no, not really. Because I can't possibly interact with the kind of nuance that the reality demands of us. But at the very least, I just want to show you in Scripture there is biblical precedent to confess and own the sins of previous generations. That there's a sense of responsibility in that, that God's people do. And it's not only here in Nehemiah, but you can read an example of it in in the book of Daniel as well. See, we are more connected to the past than we would like to admit we aren't more connected to the sins and the failures of our ancestors than we want to acknowledge often. Some of you guys are thinking, Pastor Kyle, that's, that sounds really unfair. And yet, I would say to you that the entirety of the Bible story can often be told through the lens of two different Adams. The first Adam, as our representative head and the first man, sinned in the garden by rejecting the rule and the reign of God and seeking to establish his own determining right and wrong for himself. And because of that, all of those who are descended from Adam, that's all of us, are complicit in a sin. We are sinners by nature and by choice. We're born into sin. We're born with a sense of condemnation over us, and we choose it full well. You're like, that's depressing. It is. But, But the good news of the gospel is that there was another Adam who came, the Messiah. His name was Jesus. And just as we were all condemned because of the the sin of the first Adam, so because of one act of righteousness in this new Adam figure, the many who are unrighteous are made righteous because of his perfection. It's credited to us. That's That's not very fair either, but it's good. Maybe what we long for isn't fairness, but God's grace. See, those who don't know history tend to repeat it. Now, that doesn't mean that every white person in this room needs to repent and apologize to every black person any more than we would put a blanket condemnation on everyone who is German for the Holocaust, or everyone who is of Russian descent for the current war in Ukraine. We don't treat people like that. We treat them as individuals. But it does mean that it is appropriate from time to time to acknowledge and confess wrongs that have happened in the past, to own them, even if it wasn't directly the result of one of your choices. Case in point, what happened yesterday in Buffalo, New York, we react to very, very differently depending upon our lives. Most of you maybe heard that story, but you weren't scared to go out in public. Some heard that story, and it created fear in them because of their lived experience. Now, I don't know how to solve that. I don't know at what point this is, but I do want to point out that there are complexities to life that we need to be aware of and that we as the people of God ought to actually lead the way in living together as family, being united because Jesus has dealt with the hostility that exists between us so that we're now family. And part of that, I think, means owning and understanding our past. Now, you're like, well, we talked about abortion, we talked about race, we talked about Kyle's on a roll. He must be going on sabbatical. Uh, If you have any concerns, maybe paul at rockhillcc.org would be the way (laughs) You're welcome, Paul. Um, Nehemiah confesses the sins of the people, and he owns responsibility. Then he remembers God's promises, both for judgment and for restoration in verse 8. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you are outcasts, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Nehemiah says, God, you brought judgment just like you said you would. Will you now bring restoration just like you said you would? Just as you promised. It's amazing to me how much effective prayer is simply remembering God's promises and asking him to do it. Asking him to act on what he has already said he would do. And so Nehemiah says, we know. We know what you said about our judgment, but we also know what you said about our restoration. So God, would you do it? And then finally, he asks God for success in his plan. Verse 11, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today. I wonder how many times you prayed that today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Who's he talking about? He gives us a clue. Now I was cupbearer to the king. It's obviously obvious from the, the next chapter when he actually states his plan, that he's not just praying and fasting. He is coming up with a plan. And part of it has to do with his access to the king. Let's read in chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should, my face, why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, The queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone? And when will you return? Let me know what I'm saying yes to. So please pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors in the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. So Nehemiah has been praying, I think, every day for an opportunity now for four months. Planning, strategizing, seeking an opportunity. But There's a problem with this opportunity. Problem and an oppor- and, and, and opportunity. The problem is that he has a job. He's cupbearer to the king, meaning he can't just leave and go and do it, right? He needs to get permission for this. The second, though, is that this job gives him an opportunity. He has direct access to the one man who can make it happen. And so he goes in and gives the king his wine, and his demeanor is different than it's been ever before. Now, one of the things that you didn't do if you were employed by a Persian king was go to work with a sad face. See, a Persian king was considered a god among men, and, and upsetting him could be lethal for you, and so you wouldn't come with a bad attitude. In fact, the king notices right away, you've never done this before. Nehemiah, what do you want? What's going on so he's taking a huge risk he's creating an opportunity by by acting differently toward the king and the king says what's wrong Nehemiah and he says my my city and the city of of my ancestors where my father's graves are is in ruins it's in shambles why should I not be sad like this now the king he's no dummy he's like all right what do you want what is it you are requesting because you wouldn't just do this And here, I love this, Nehemiah sends up a quick, quick I call it SOS prayer. So I prayed to the God of heaven. Nehemiah, what are you asking for? Oh, Lord, help me out. (laughs) Notice he's been praying very strategically. He's been praying very eloquently for a long time. And now, in the moment, he's like, God, help me. One of the things that I've noticed about godly people is that they're praying all the time. And that it's very much okay to send up a quick SOS prayer. Here we go, God. I'm about to step into it, and if you're not in this, this could go really bad for me. Lord, give me favor. He asks for three things. He asks for time off from work. He asks for permission to rebuild this city wall that, by the way, has previously been stopped because another king in the past viewed it as a potential danger to rebuild this wall so that there might be a rebellion or an insurrection and you have to go and conquer the city again. And third, for the king to pay for it. So he says, Can I get some time off? Can I go and do this thing that might potentially be threatening? And will you pay for it? And the king says, How long are you going to be gone? And it's at this point, it's obvious. Nehemiah has thought about this. He's done some planning. He gives him an exact answer so he knows what he's saying yes to. And then it gets really crazy. He says, Oh, by the way, can you write letters to this guy so that I can have timber from the forest? That's basically like saying, Can I have your credit card and go to Home Depot and get whatever I need for the project? That's exactly what Nehemiah is asking. And the king says, Okay. This is crazy. 140 years it's been broken down. They've been seen as a threat. Yes, they've let some of them go back to, to kind of reestablish, but, but now this is crazy. This is, this is God. I think those prayers were doing something, weren't they? How much faith do you think it took Nehemiah to make this ask? For time off, for permission, for funding? Probably a lot, but it's been four months and God delivers. That's the last part. Verse 8, the king says yes, and the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. The king says yes, but Nehemiah gives all the credit to whom? To God. See, Proverbs chapter 21, one, we read these words The king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Nations will rise and they will fall, rulers will rage and they will oppose the Lord. And through all of it, God will not break a sweat. He is sovereign. He is king. And just as he stirred up Cyrus 70 years before to to lead the people back, now he moves in a different king, Artaxerxes, to say yes. And oh, by the way, I'll pay for it. See, with God, the impossible is possible. And some people need to hear that today. With God, the impossible is possible. Faith changes the equation of what is possible. See, under Nehemiah, and I would say his incredible leadership, the people of God rebuild the walls of Jerusalem in 52 days. It's truly remarkable. Torn down for 140 years, rebuilt in 52 days. After that, there is a a revival, a renewal among God's people as they read the book of the law, as as they recommit themselves and they celebrate the Passover, there's conviction of sin and there's recommitment of the people to live under God's rule and reign as his covenant people. Now, it didn't last, but it was remarkable nonetheless. So, 2,600 years after this was written, so what? What does this have to do with our life? What does this have to do with your life today? I mean, it's great and all, like God rebuilt the wall of Jerusalem, but like we don't live in Jerusalem. We live in Duluth, Minnesota. or superior. Here's my first question. Is there anything that God has opened your eyes to and made it a personal crisis? Is there anything that other people just kind of see and it's normal, but to you, you're not okay with it. You, you need to do something about it. It's, 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 it's reached a point where it's a, it's a personal crisis to you. Have you prayed about it? Have you brought that burden to the Lord? Start there. Third, if you've prayed about it, have you made a plan? Have you counted the cost? Have you come up with a strategy down to the specific details? See, sometimes you're going to have to make just a really bold and crazy ask. And when you do that, it's a lot better if you have specifics. This is what I'm actually asking for. As opposed to just this vague dream and idea. And if you've done those things, you've prayed, you've sought the Lord, you've come up with a plan and specifics, do you need to step out in faith and let God show up? He's already opened your eyes to what everybody else seems to see but not see. He's given you a a picture of a different reality He's maybe even given you a plan for the resources that you might need. Maybe you need to step out and say, all right, God, let's do this. And step out in a place where if God doesn't show up, it's not going to go well for you. That's what Nehemiah does. I can tell you what God did in my life in the spring and summer of 2006. He broke my heart for the spiritual condition of the Twin Ports. He gave me a vision to spend however many years he grants me planting not just a church, But multiple churches that might reach and saturate the area with communities of light, staying faithful to the gospel, but continuing to engage in ever-changing culture. I'll be honest with you, that dream, it's beyond me. And it's beyond us. If God doesn't show up, it isn't going to happen. It's crazy to think about the, the spiritual climate of our city that's just normal to everybody else, actually changing so that it's super receptive to the good news of the gospel especially in a culture that, if anything, has gotten more and more hostile to the preaching of Jesus and the gospel. And yet, I also think there's an incredible opportunity today and in the next coming years that the things that people are turning to for peace, for comfort, for security, the things that people are turning to to answer the deepest longings and questions of the heart, are fakes. They're counterfeits. They promise what they can't deliver. We are more anxious and depressed and, and frazzled as a culture than we've been in a long, long time. Because the things that are put forward as solutions to solve our problems, they don't factor in the Lord. They don't factor in the way that we were created and, and the way that we long in, in the deepest part of our souls. And so we shouldn't be shocked when they don't deliver. See, guys, the way of Jesus is countercultural to this world, but we can't be so opposed to the world that when the, those who have bought in find themselves as refugees, don't turn to us for some answers. We've got to do this in a winsome way that, that, that shows that Jesus is compelling because we're experiencing peace. I read a book recently, and he said, you know, the new wave for the mission of the church is to be a non-anxious presence in all the crazy. A non-anxious presence in a world of unbelievable turmoil. And the only way that we can be a non-anxious presence is by experiencing the renewal that comes with living with Jesus and experiencing God's presence renewing us over and over again. See, in Nehemiah, they got a taste of the renewal of God. But deep in his heart, I think he believed that if he was able to return and rebuild the walls and that the, so that the people would be free from trouble and shame, and if they recommitted themselves and did their part, that, that they would be fine. But what he found out after all of those reforms was that their problem was deeper than simply the city walls and gates and new commitments that they made. They needed new hearts. They needed a new power existing within them so that they could actually do what God commands them to do. They needed the Messiah to come and to deliver them from their sin. So the reforms of Ezra and Nehemiah, well significant, didn't deliver what they promised. But I think the good news for us this morning is that Jesus does. He delivers. The Messiah has come. His name is Jesus. And through his life and death and resurrection, he has provided salvation and transformation that Nehemiah was longing for but didn't even get to taste. So what do we need to do today? We need to believe the good news of our deliverer. We need to trust in the Lord Jesus. We need to turn from our sin and and say, no, it's it's your job to tell me what is right and wrong. I want to live under your rule because that's where blessing and life come. We need to acknowledge that we have fallen short of that, but that he has done it and he has done it for us. Just as we are condemned in the first Adam, so we have life in the new one whose name is Jesus. And that's good news that everything he did is now credited to me by faith in him. And so if you're here today and you are not a Christian, you need to believe the good news of what Jesus has done and become one today. If you are here and you are a Christian, you need to believe the good news of what Jesus has done today and live like it's true. Live like the work is done and that the renewal has already begun and the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of us so that we can actually live out the way that we were created to live. Now, you're not going to do this perfectly. I promise you, I don't but you have a new power and a new heart at work within you because of what Jesus has done, and that is good news. That means that the renewal that we get to taste and experience is of a different quality than what Nehemiah and Ezra offered the people. Praise God for that. So how are we renewed? We're renewed by remembering the good news of what Jesus has done. Oh, but Pastor Kyle, I forget all the time. How can I remember? I'm glad you brought that up. We're going to look, turn our attention to the communion table, something that Jesus gave to us to remind us over and over and over again of our need for him and our need for renewal. Just like we need to eat and drink every single day to renew our spirit or to renew our, our bodies, to, to give us energy and life. So as Christians, we, rene- we need to remember who he is and what he has done nourishes and encourages our faith in a beautiful and a unique way. And so as we turn to the communion table, and I've had a number of people say, hey, Pastor Kyle, we haven't done communion for a number of weeks now. And I love when I get that question, because it means we need to remember again. We need to take in again what Jesus has done for us. So we're going to do that. And as we do that, the communion meal forces us to look back and forward. Forces us to look back on Jesus' body broken for us. His blood shed for us for the forgiveness of our sins. And to remember that on our own we are in a heap of trouble. But as we remember what Jesus has done for us and the extent of his love, he also gave us a promise while celebrating this meal with his disciples the last time. He said, I will eat this again with you in the kingdom. At the wedding supper of the Lamb, of, of, of which this is just an appetizer a taste, a glimpse, I will eat this again with you in the kingdom. And so as much as it focuses us back in faith, it also focuses our gaze forward in hope that this isn't the end. And that one day he will make all things new. Christian, non-Christian, believe that today. It is good news. Let me pray. God, thank you for this communion meal and how it nourishes and encourages our faith. As you take tangible things and and illustrate spiritual realities for us. God, as we eat and as we drink, would you draw us close? Would you remind us of your nearness? Would you cause us to remember yet again today your incredible grace and mercy to us? And God, might you awaken faith in someone in this room for the first time. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. If you are here this morning and you are a Christian, meaning you have put your faith and trust In the Lord Jesus Christ, you believe in him for salvation. Then You are welcome at this table as we sing. Whether you're a member of this church or not, you are welcome to come and remember. If you're here this morning and you are not a follower of Jesus, you have not put your faith and trust in him, then there are two options for you. If you're just not there yet, if you still got some questions and, and some doubts that you're working through, I would just say, I'm really glad that you're here, but please don't participate in this part of the service. No one's going to judge you or think weird of you. We've all been there before. But just remain in your seat while we remember the body of Jesus broken and the blood of Jesus shed for us. However, if you're here this morning and you realize, I need him. and Something awoke in your heart today and you, you believe that what Jesus did, he didn't just do in general, he did that for you. And this morning you believe, you're trusting in him. And I would invite you to get up out of your seat and remember in faith for perhaps the first time, Jesus' is body broken and his blood shed for you and the forgiveness of your sins. Would you come as we sing?